Welcome back to another week of Reading Through the New Testament. This is, I believe, week 21. We're going to read Acts chapters 12 through 16 for the week of May 22nd through May 28th. And so I'm so glad you're joining us again uh, this week. We're continuing our study through Acts, walking through it. We're now at a major, uh, kind of at a turning point in the book of Acts, right? Because now the gospel is about ready to go, uh, the Gentile mission, and really it kind of starts turning to where the last half of the whole book is now focused on the Apostle Paul and uh, his ministry. And we talked last week about his conversion, how he he was... uh, in a sense, captured by Jesus Christ and is now going to be used as a vessel to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So as we look here at Acts 12 through 16, what are we going to read about? What are we looking at uh, this week? Well, chapter 12, we have the persecution of the Jerusalem church. Uh, Herod begins persecuting the church. He kills James, the brother of John. Uh, Peter is rescued, um, but the, the church in Jerusalem is going through some some suffering, some difficult times. But then our attention is drawn back to Antioch, um, where, where we see eventually Paul and Barnabas are sent out uh, to spread the gospel uh, outside of Antioch to uh, outside elsewhere. And so they go to uh, Cyprus, they go to Pisidian Antioch, they are at Iconium where they're rejected, they go to Lystra before they come back to Antioch. So chapters 13 and 14 are really that first missionary journey where they, the uh, Paul and Barnabas go out, spread the gospel, they suffer, and then on their way back, they encourage the churches and come back to Antioch. Chapter 15 is an interesting chapter and an important chapter in the history of uh, the New Testament church and the history of Christianity because the big question now becomes, well, we've got all these Gentiles coming to know the Lord and should they are they required to be circumcised? Are they required to obey all of the Mosaic laws? We're glad they're coming to know Jesus, but doesn't that mean they some people are saying, well, doesn't that mean they need to uh, basically become Jews? Um, and other people are saying, no, no, no. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, they don't. So there's a big uh, discussion that happens. They go back to Jerusalem and to talk about this, to decide what to, to talk about and say, what does the Bible say? What is going on here? And, and what, what is our, what is, in a sense, what is supposed to be standard operating procedure? What's the policy that, that God has set up for the church? What is the, uh, what is the condition for being a part of the church? And uh, we'll see what that is. And we see eventually it's faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, then eventually the latter part of 15, all the way through the rest of 16, we're going to see again another missionary journey where Paul goes out to Greece, um, goes and spreads the gospel. They go to Macedonia, they go to Philippi, where we're going to end up here in chapter 16. But the trip continues uh, next week when we read in chapter 17 um, and so on. So that's what we're doing. We're kind of like the first missionary journey, um, the, the Jerusalem Council, the second missionary journey, and at the very beginning in chapter 12, we have uh, the persecution uh, going on. So that's what's kind of going on here in uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Acts. So again this week, I want to uh, think with you about what are, we, what are we seeing in these verses, and what are some, uh, you know, some thoughts and help us to uh, consider and reflect upon what is being said uh, in these verses. And here we have um, 
you know, uh, William Arnault, who I've been talking to you about. Another, we have one thing today from Horatius Bonar. Uh, things just to help really us think about what we're reading in in this book and to meditate on it together. Um, so, as we pointed out, as we turn our attention now to Acts chapter twelve, right? James is killed. Peter's imprisoned. Peter eventually is rescued, um, and Herod eventually, wicked Herod here, um, is eventually killed. <laughs> Uh, he's, he's an opposer of the gospel and eventually because of his pride and his arrogance, he is struck down because he would not give glory, uh, to God, but the word of God continues to increase. So the enemies of the church, um, they may rage for a while, but they are struck down in the end. The King Jesus is the King and, uh, even Herod can't, can't stop this. So here, I want to talk to you about the last bit here of Acts chapter uh, 12, where we see here the, uh, the death of Herod, but then also we have our attention taken in turn to now in um, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, about Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So let's read here a little bit. This is a section, uh, Arnaud calls this uh, section, his chapter here, where he's writing called Antioch Occupied for Christ. Antioch Occupied for Christ. He says this, The account of Herod's death, introduced into the narrative, accords in all main points with the statements of Josephus. He had removed his residence from Jerusalem to Caesarea, that he might be on the seacoast and in closer communication with Rome. On the occasion of a grand assembly connected with an embassy from the commercial communities of Tyre and Sidon, he entered the theater in his robes of state. His royal robes, studded with precious stones, glittered in the sun as he moved, and the obsequious multitude shouted, ascribing divine honors to their idol, according to the custom of Roman mobs. The judgment of God fell upon the frail mortal, and he died soon after of a most loathsome disease. So died the persecutor, but the word of God grew and multiplied. This precious note is inserted in the history for comfort to the church in time of trouble. Fear not, little flock. Greater is he that is for you than all that are against you. The word, a living power, had free course through the nations when the feeble monarch who attempted to quench it lay in his grave. Thus Pharaoh and his army sank in the sea, while Israel emancipated, praised the Lord, and resumed their march. If the princes and peoples of the earth should combine in an effort to destroy all the grain that exists, to stamp out the life of the staff of life, they would not succeed. The seed has life in itself. Some of it, as the destroyers bore it to their bonfires, would be spilt upon the ground and be lost to view. The lost would live in spring. From its resurrection, a manifold return would be obtained, and the fields would be sown and ripen. Seed time and harvest would follow each other after the foolish exterminators had returned to the dust. In like manner, the efforts of persecutors have proved abortive. They have not been able to extinguish the word of life. God has secured that there shall be seed to the sower and bread to the eater, both in the temporal and spiritual spheres, even unto the end of the world. The word grew. The expression is general, but in point of fact, the widespread result was made up of many individual conversions, as a river is composed of many drops all obeying the same law. 
In 10,000 separate seeds, the word fell into 10,000 separate hearts, and each heart, rent for receiving the seed, was further rent by the seed when it swelled and grew. There is no wholesale spiritual growth. The wide revival consists of many persons, each of them separately renewed in the Spirit. Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch. There's great significance in the going and coming of these messengers. These are the couriers of the great king, carrying his commands from province to province of his realm. First, they carried from Antioch a contribution to sustain the Christians of Jewish origin at Jerusalem through the famine. That gift was well fitted as an instrument to remove barriers and unite Greeks and Jews in the common faith. From Jerusalem and from Jews came forth the spiritual things wherewith the Gentiles at Antioch were enriched. They only obey a law of the kingdom when they load the returning train with temporal gifts for Christian Jews in Jerusalem. Such reciprocal charities were eminently fitted to break down the partition walls and blend all believers into one. By this time, the Christian leaders were aware of the importance of Antioch. They determined to occupy it for the work of the kingdom. Foreseeing the expansion of missionary work both in and from the capital, Barnabas and Saul induced John Mark to accompany them and share their labor. He was the son of Mary, sister of Barnabas, in whose house the prayer meeting was held while Peter was in prison, and to whose house Peter went when he was free. This young man would go to Antioch probably in two capacities, both as an assistant to the elder missionaries and as a witness of their work, who might afterwards give evidence in Jerusalem regarding its character. On the return of the deputation from Jerusalem, the College of Evangelists was constituted at Antioch. Excluding John Mark as a junior and a newcomer, it consisted of five members. Besides the two missionaries already introduced to our notice, there was there were Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the, the Tetrarch. The note attached to the name of this man is full of interest. He was foster fellow of that Herod who slew the Baptist, and said it not the Lord on the morning of his death. Menaean thus seems to be another Moses drawn out of the water. Brought up in the company of an ungodly and licentious prince, he was nevertheless chosen as an object of mercy and employed as a messenger of grace. Perhaps, like Moses, he had it in his power to obtain and keep a position near the throne. But, like Moses, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. We have no account of his conversion, but whatever may have been its date and its circumstances, it is certain that when he became a disciple of Christ, he no longer set any value on his connection with Herod's house. The power and sovereignty of grace are frequently displayed in choosing one from the steps of a throne and making him a vessel to bear the name of Christ. Menaean was snatched from the side of a murderer and numbered among the saints of the Most High. His name was blotted from the family register of the Tetrarch and written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who have been saved, as it were by fire, who have been arrested and won in spite of the strong man's greatest efforts to keep his goods in peace, have peculiar delight in looking back over the way by which the Lord has led them. On the other hand, those who remain in Herod's house, entangled by its business and gains, should learn from this case that they are welcome to Christ. It was a true word that fell from lying lips when the Pharisees murmured, This man receiveth sinners. Whosoever will, let him come. There is scarcely a congregation of believers that lacks its Menaean, 
highly esteemed now as a brother in the Lord, who seemed destined in his earlier years as devotee and victim to the pleasures of sin. It is a peculiar delight to the Christian brotherhood and a peculiar glory to divine grace when one who has been brought up for the world is snatched from the world and admitted as an heir of the new kingdom. It is sweet to see the children of Christian parents born to the Lord in their childhood through means of a pious nurture, but it is perhaps more gladdening and inspiring to see the goings of the Lord when he puts forth his power to wrench subjects from the God of this world and make them princes round his own throne. That is a, a really cool section because it, a, a little a verse right there, you know, where you even would think about Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. You wouldn't think that, you know, as you, as you meditate upon what would that have been like? And I think that is so helpful. Like he points out that here's a man who was kind of like Moses, who had the ability to, to serve in high office, but who instead chose to serve the Lord and, and did so and counted uh, the, the, the treasures of Christ and the reproach of Christ as greater than all the treasures of Egypt and of this world. So we've got the, 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 uh, the mission now. These guys are here in Antioch, and now the, go- the gospel is to go forth. The, the message is to be sent forth to all the world. And here we have William Arnaud now talking as we talk here in the, the second part here of, of now Acts chapter 13, where now we're going to see these guys, particularly Barnabas and Saul, are going to be sent forth and sent out, set apart for the work of the gospel. We read this right here. Uh, this is called the first foreign mission. And we're going to talk about them going to uh, Cyprus uh, when they went to Cyprus and preached the gospel uh, there. Um, Arnaud writes this. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. While they were enjoying privileges for themselves, they heard the command to carry these privileges to others. Behold the natural history of missions. Freely ye have received, freely give. They possess the gospel, and therefore they must spread it abroad. Two were sent out together. They remembered the act of the Lord Jesus, how he sent out the seventy in pairs, and they will follow his example. The ministry in the Spirit is sovereign here on every side. Antioch is chosen as the first site of a Gentile church, and consequently becomes the starting point for the first foreign mission. The same features that commended the place to Imperial Rome as the eastern capital, commended it to the apostles of the Lord as the headquarters of the kingdom that is not of this world. Situated in the east, it enjoyed, by the Orontes and the Mediterranean, easy access to Greece and Rome. From this great mart, the glad tidings will be borne along with the stream of commerce to the nations of Africa and Europe. The men chosen for foreign work in accordance with the mind of the Spirit were the mightiest men. They did not send out some persons who had turned out useless at home. The foreign field always needs, and in that age actually obtained, the ablest laborers. I suspect the chief obstacle to the success of modern missions lies here. The church at Antioch sent the cream of the ministry abroad. If they had sent the, if they had sent the grounds, their success would have corresponded to their effort. Here and there in our own time, when the Spirit has descended in power, some men mighty in word and deed have taken the field, and the result has been a gain corresponding to the outlay. But it is the grief and the weakness of the church at the present day that her chiefs are for the most part occupied at home. 
They sent Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas had already been tried and found faithful. His gravity, his authority, and his benevolence seemed to point him out as the leader of the expedition. But they have at hand this young man Saul, a man of vast knowledge, of fiery zeal, of great courage and unflagging perseverance, with, but withal not much tried and not much known. Send him out under the direction and influence of Barnabas, that his great talents may be turned to the best account. Soon shall the whole church know that the Lord has destined this man for the foremost place. When the pair departed, it was Barnabas and Saul. When they returned, it was Paul and Barnabas. Westward the expedition moved. Europe must be won to Christ. The light of life, like the natural sun, travels from the east. The two missionaries were solemnly ordained to their specific work and set out on their journey. Whether by land or by the river, they first traveled to Seleucia, the seaport of Antioch on the Mediterranean, and taking ship at that part, they crossed over to Cyprus, the nearest of the large islands. Having landed at Salamis, a town on the eastern side of Cyprus, they crossed the country without much delay or much success until they reached Paphos, the residence of the Roman governor on the western shore. This was a place notorious for its licentiousness even in that age. It was the shrine of impurity for the heathen world. There the unclean spirit had his seat. These soldiers of Jesus Christ, in their first campaign, marched right up to the capital of the enemy's kingdom. Among Roman provinces, Cyprus was small. The governor held not the highest rank. One may suppose he was disappointed when he learned that his comparatively insignificant that this was comparatively insignificantly, that this incompar, excuse me, I can't believe I'm messing up all these words. When he learned that this comparatively insignificant sphere was assigned to him and envied the better fortune of competitors who obtained Gaul in Spain. He lived, however, to thank God for the providence that cast his lot in Cyprus. He did not enjoy so large a salary as the chief of a richer province, but he obtained through the missionaries a greater treasure. This governor was a prudent man. He was thoughtful and sober. He was probably dissatisfied with the worn-out superstitions of idolatry and longing for something solid on which his soul might lean. It is probable he asked Pilate's question, What is truth? with an earnestness that Pilate never knew. Alas, when people in high places become earnest inquirers, False teachers swarm around them like flies, eager to suck sustenance from the wounds of the great. The governor had at his time in, the, in his train a certain fortune teller who called himself Elamas, that is, the wise, for the root in Arabic seems to be the same as the Turkish Yulama or priest. This man's own Hebrew name was Bar-Jesus, son of the Savior. He pretended, through soothsaying art, to cure the ailment of the governor's spirit. And poor Sergius, precisely because he was ailing in spirit, had not forced to throw off the incubus. The mountback stuck to the governor and fattened on his wealth. When the missionaries from Antioch reached the city and opened their commission by preaching Christ, the governor sent a message to summon them to his court that he might hear their doctrines. They willingly obeyed the summons and presented themselves at the palace. But the sorcerer, fearing lest his own influence should be destroyed, endeavored to prevent the governor from listening to the gospel or to hinder him from receiving if he had already heard it. How eagerly the modern sorceress who sits on the seven hills strives to hinder a meeting between human souls and Christ in this world.
At this stage, we would be apt to say, what a pity that Elymas was on the spot to interfere with the good work when the Christian missionaries obtained an opportunity of preaching to the ruling classes at the capital. Nay, he doeth all things well. As Christ said when Lazarus died, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. So he might say in the case of Sergius Paulus, I am glad for his sake that Elymas was there with his sorceries, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. For the efforts of the sorcerer to turn him away were overruled as the means of bringing him near. If Elymas, with his wicked arts, had not been there, it is probable that the governor would not have been converted. In his later experience, Paul became well aware that the opposition by adversaries is often an essential means of success. On one occasion, reporting a very favorable opportunity for conducting his work, he describes it by two features, a wide door and many adversaries. He seems to intimate that one of these two factors alone would not have constituted the opportunity which he valued and enjoyed. Both were needed. If there had not been a fierce wind blowing against his kite, it would not have been able to rise. The experienced missionary accordingly was glad of the storm. Who shall tell whether the sermon would not have flattened, fallen flat on sleepy ears, and whether the governor would not have yawned the preacher away to make room for some new excitement, if the opposition of Elymas had not arrested his attention, and the judgment on Elymas had not struck him with astonishment? All things wrought for good. The things that happened then and there turned to the furtherance of the gospel. Here first the name Paul appears, and Saul is not employed again, except in narratives of his earlier experience. Here, under his new name, Paul springs to the front, and he is never found in the second rank again. Now, first, he is fully installed into the office as the apostle of the Gentiles. It is in his short, sharp rebuke of Elymas that he reads himself in. In allusion to the meaning of the sorcerer's name, son of the Savior, the apostle sternly denounces him as a child of the devil, and through inspiration speaks the sentence which God inflicts, the sentence of temporary blindness. This judgment, falling on the adversary, convinced Sergius that Paul and Barnabas were men of God, and made him reverently listen to their word. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. What was done could not have enlightened and renewed the Roman, but it opened his mind for the reception of the word of life. Thus the Lord in providence at this day employs judgment strokes of many different kinds to open a path for the gospel into hearts that otherwise would have remained closed. Welcome the Lord's hand, even though its stroke be painful when it prepares the way for the Lord's word. If we had access to the great multitude who stand round the throne in white clothing and could ask each saint to tell his own experience, probably nine out of every ten would answer that providence, generally feared and fretted at, came crushing forward first and broke up a way for grace to follow. The judgments of the Lord's hand opened a way into the heart of Sergius for the Lord's word. That word, when it entered, filled him with wonder. He was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. After the storm and the thunder, the still small voice asserted its power. The story of the cross was a new thing to the Roman. It was not like the doctrine of the Greek philosophers. It was not like the doctrine of the Jewish soothsayer. These missionaries told the governor that God is love, 
and that he so loved the world that he gave his only son to save the lost. They told him that God, in our nature, had given himself a sacrifice, the just for the unjust. As this doctrine fell on the governor's ears, his heart melted. Felix trembled and returned to his sin. Sergius trembled and cleaved to Christ. One is taken and another left. Poor Sergius had lived up to this time in a dark, sunless world. He was uneasy and knew not what ailed him. He craved for light and yet knew not where to find it. We know that he longed for something to satisfy his soul, for he kept the Jewish magician hanging about his court. He clutched a shadow, and this showed at least that he had an appetite for the substance. In his darkness he had heard of this man's pretensions and sent for him. Can you strike some light for us, stranger? For we are in darkness, unendurable here. Give us some light for our souls if you can by your magical arts. To such a man, in such a mood, the doctrine of the Lord when it was unfolded was like the sunlight bursting through the primeval mist upon a hitherto benighted world. It was sight to the blind and life to the dead. So there we have it there. That is the the first missionary uh proclamation there, the first missionary uh, call there that they go and they preach the gospel. And this is kind of an example, isn't it, of what the, happens with the gospel, that the there is a wide door open, but then there's also this uh, many adversaries that show up, many adversaries that oppose the truth of, of the gospel and, 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 and that way. So <clears throat> now they continue going to preach and they preach in the synagogue um, in the synagogue there. And he again preach about this forgiveness through the one name. Forgiveness through the one name. And this is from Horatius Bonar, which is taken from Acts chapter 13, verses 38 through 39. Um, there where he, he reminds them again um, that everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness is proclaimed to you. And he has this to say about this. The apostle had been relating a piece of history, simple in itself, but of vast importance as to results, certain facts in the history of David and of David's son. On these facts, he grounds his proclamation of good news, good news to Israel, good news to the sons of men, the tidings of pardoning love. There is a message. It is a special one, a true one, a divine one sent by God himself. Be it known unto you, take this as a matter absolutely certain in which you ought to know, and which therefore I now tell you, it is like, behold, and hear, God is a message for us, glad tidings of great joy. Secondly, this message is concerning forgiveness. This is the first thing which a sinner needs, and it is the first which God presents him with. God knows that we are under condemnation, under wrath, under the curse, and that till these are removed, nothing can be done. So he begins his dealings with the sinner by presenting him with a pardon. He comes proposing to reverse the condemnation, to cancel the curse, to lift off the wrath. It is this that the apostle brings out so fully in connection with the blood and the covenant when he says, now where remission of sin is, there is no more offering for sin. To a condemned world, this message comes. Be it known to you, O condemned man, that there is forgiveness for thee, forgiveness to everyone who heeds it, needs it. This is our message. To us as condemned, as accursed, as lost, as worthless, as helpless, the tidings come. 
tidings of God's forgiving love and of the forgiveness which that love presents to us. Thirdly, this forgiveness is through the man, Christ Jesus. Only in connection with this man can forgiveness reach us. In any other way, it is one of the impossibilities of the universe. It is impossible with God, with angels, with men. Apart from this man, there is only condemnation and doom to the sinner. This man was sent to provide it. It was, it was a possible thing, but only in one way and through one channel. It must come in righteousness. It must not only be gracious, but righteous and lawful, safe for us and honorable for God. This man came to make it so, to reconcile the righteousness with the grace, to present us with a holy pardon. This man has provided it. It is now done. That which was possible before has become righteous now. Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, has done the work by bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. The wrath and curse have been born, have been born pardon and righteousness are now one. This man has it for us. It is in his hands. He is the vessel of pardon. Its fullness is in him. He has exalted a prince and a savior to give it. Come unto me, he says to the condemned and the weary. We now know where and how and when pardon is to be had by the sinner. In preaching this man, we preach forgiveness. We have much to say concerning this man, much to make known respecting his person and work, and all that we have to tell brings out the fullness deposited in him and the completeness of the forgiveness which God presents to the sinner, to the ungodliest, through him and through him alone. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In all that we say of Christ, we make known God's free pardon. For there is not one single div- single particle of the divine testimony concerning him that does not more or less directly reveal the forgiveness that there is with God. Forgiveness. Forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who died and was buried and rose again. This is God's message to man. Heaven cries aloud to earth, Forgiveness! The cross cries aloud, forgiveness, forgiveness to the guiltiest, to the most hardened rebel, to the oldest criminal, to the most stout-hearted sinner. Forgiveness, complete, immediate, free, and everlasting. This forgiveness, fourthly, comes to us in believing. Concerning this man, God has given a testimony. And to that testimony, he has annexed a promise to the effect that everyone, whoever he be, that believes the testimony shall get the pardon. It is not a mere testimony without a promise that would simply relieve the burdened sinner to the extent of showing him that pardon was possible or likely. It is a testimony followed up by a promise of salvation to the man who credits the testimony. And this is the true appropriation the accepting of the promise, along with the crediting of the testimony. Thus, testimony and promise must go together. He that takes the one without the other is not only shutting himself out from blessing, but he is separating what God has linked together. He that says, I believe the testimony concerning Jesus, but I am not sure of being a pardoned man, is taking the testimony but rejecting the promise or at least saying that it is not true to him until he is conscious of having undergone certain spiritual changes and experienced certain religious feelings. Thus, we are pardoned, and thus we know that we are pardoned, not by reflecting on or being satisfied with the quality of our faith, 
but with the certainty of the promise. The promise goes beyond pardon and proclaims justification as the portion of every man who believes. For while pardon delivers a criminal from his sentence, it does not necessarily restore him to favor or present him with a complete standing before his sovereign and his fellow men. But when justified, as well as pardoned, we are taken up to the level of the unfallen and sinless. Nay, we are treated according to the character and deservings of him through whom the justification comes. We are made to stand where he stands and to receive the righteous favor which he receives. Yes, we are justified from all things. Our whole man is justified. Our whole person is accepted. And everything, great or small, that was against us is taken out of the way. All this simply is, all this simply in believing. Our justification begins and is carried on entirely through this. Not working, nor feeling, nor striving, nor wrestling, but simply believing. It is our believing that introduces us into the condition of justified men. It is this believing that God acknowledges. It is this believing that the conscious conscience responds to. For that which we believe is the one justifying thing, the one thing which is well-pleasing to God and which pacifies the conscience. We have to do with the propitiation completed on the cross. In crediting God's testimony to that propitiation, we have pardon. And in accepting the promise annexed to the testimony, we know that we have it, because God is true. That is the gospel again, isn't it? I love Horatius Bonar, that helpful emphasis upon the fact that faith is not itself, a, you know, it's not like we have to go through certain spiritual experiences or go through this or that or certain feelings. It is believing the testimony about Jesus Christ. Believing that, we have the promise. And that is what makes us a Christian, isn't it? What makes us a Christian is that we are in Christ, that we believe in him. Um, because, and that's so important because when we come to Acts 15, the big question here is, is, well, do you have to do something else in order to be in Christ? Do you have to do something else? Do you have to become a Jew? Do you have to get circumcised? What more is needed? Is there anything else that we need to add to this faith? And the early church, the apostles got together and discussed this question in Acts chapter 15. And we see what they said. And this is called the Jerusalem Council. It's a the gathering of, of these early church, of the apostles and of the elders. They got together to discuss this question. And let's read about it. Let's think about it. And they, they came together to talk about it. And they came to a conclusion which has impacted our faith to the present day. Uh, this is from William Arnaud talking about the Council of Jerusalem. When the deputies arrived at Jerusalem, the interest in the missionaries and their accomplished work among the heathen was so great that the dispute on a point of doctrine was in the first instance thrown into the shade. Even on their way through Phoenicia and Samaria, every town claimed a meeting, and every church rejoiced in the glad news. In the capital, too, the desire to hear of the Lord's work predominated over all other claims, and nothing was done towards the adjudication of the appealed case until first the disciples were all satisfied with the details of the mission in Cyprus and throughout the cities of the Lesser Asia. 
When this great appetite was satisfied, then the apostles and elders made preparation for an assembly to sit in judgment on the question whether the Mosaic rites, by that they mean like, you know, do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to follow the food laws, right? All that stuff. Whether the Mosaic rites should be imposed upon the Greek converts. The Christian Pharisees lost no time in bringing the question up and pressing for a decision in their own favor. Whether these were the same men who returned, now returned from Antioch or others resident in Jerusalem who entertained the same opinions is not made clear. The apostles and elders came together to consider of this matter. The assembly was called to order. The case was introduced and the debate began. After a good deal of preliminary discussion, Peter took occasion to narrate his own experience and to express his views. He had, at an early date, been divinely called to carry the gospel to Gentile families residing within the territory of Judea. You know, you'll remember it, that was Cornelius. And reasoning by analogy, he held strongly the view that Paul and Barnabas were justified in admitting the Greeks on a foreign soil directly and simply into the privileges of the church, without enjoining the observance of the law of Moses. The next step was to hear a narrative of the facts from the lips of the two missionaries. A great impression seems to have been made by the intelligence from foreign parts. All the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Paul and Barnabas. It is clear that besides the apostles and elders, a very great number of Christians were present when this report was submitted. Immediately after the address of the missionaries, and while the assembly were under the solemn and tender impressions of the scene, James, the Lord's brother, who seems to have acted as a kind of president, summed up the evidence and proposed the decision of the court. The proposal submitted by James was unanimously adopted. It unequivocally condemned the demand made by the Pharisaic Christians upon the Gentile converts. It maintained for the church an absolute freedom from the bondage of the ceremonial law. It enjoined abstinence from certain pollutions which were common among idolaters, but prescribed no ritual as necessary to salvation. This is the charter of the church's liberty to the present day. No man or body of men has a right to prescribe for Christians as of authority any observance or any law or any form. The conscience is not subject to human law. It is well worthy of observation in our own day that when a schism was threatened between two portions of the Christian church, the difficulty was overcome and the breach prevented by refusing to adopt a new and additional term of communion. The introduction of new dogmas as essential to salvation necessarily rends the body of Christ. Christians must hold and profess all that their Savior gave them, even at the risk of division. But woe to those who, on any pretext, disturb the brotherhood by imposing any yoke which the Master did not impose. The council at Jerusalem deputed Judas and Silas, two of their own number, to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their return to Antioch. These two confirmed the testimony of the missionaries and certified the authenticity of the letter which they bore. The Christians at Antioch greatly rejoiced in the consolidation of their liberty and the suppression of the threatened schism. Silas, one of the deputies from Jerusalem, having become interested in the foreign work, remained at Antioch with the missionaries when his colleague returned. The work of evangelization was now prosecuted with renewed zeal in the great Syrian capital. The foundation of the church in that city must be laid deep and broad, that it may serve as a basis for carrying the mission into Europe. 
But the spirit of Paul could not long submit to the conditions of a settled ministry. He longed for labor on the foreign field. His restlessness was of the Lord for the good of the world. It would have been an unspeakable loss to the Western nations if this man had grown indolent and settled down in comfortable and honorable employment at home. Accordingly, after a period of united effort in Antioch, Paul proposed to Barnabas that they should revisit the churches which they had planted in Western Asia. Barnabas acquiesced heartily in the main features of his brother's plan, but a hitch occurred in the choice of a junior assistant. Barnabas preferred Mark, his own nephew, and Paul refused to concur in the choice on the ground that Mark had prematurely deserted the mission in its time of need before. This weakness, against which the good Barnabas was not proof, has wrought much mischief both in church and state. It has obtained a name, nepotism, from the very relation in which Mark stood to the senior missionary. So greatly has it interfered with every good work in the world that those men have always been held in special honor, who have been able to resist it and have appointed the fittest men to important trust without respect to family connections. But when a decisive difference of judgment occurred, although the altercation was sharp at the moment, these two men ultimately adopted a wise resolution, and permanent good sprang from incidental evil. Two well-appointed missions sprang from one, and the benefit was doubled. So the Lord over all makes the wrath of even his own servants to praise him, and the remainder of that wrath he restrains. How tender and long-suffering is our Father in heaven! Instead of punishing us for our quarrels, he often turns them to the furtherance of his own cause. He served himself of this of the weakness, as well as of the strength of these two primitive missionaries. Barnabas, with Mark as his companion, went by sea to Cyprus. Paul, with Silas as coadjutor, traveled overland westward through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Thus, each of the two senior missionaries on that occasion visited the home of his youth, for Tarsus, the place of Paul's nativity, was the chief city of Cilicia. Nothing is said of Paul's reception as a prophet in his own country. It is evident that he did not linger long about Tarsus. Probably he found too much curiosity among the people there regarding him personally. He disliked and resented everything that turned the people's attention from the Christ whom he preached. He pressed accordingly westward through the province and tarried nowhere long till he reached Derb and Lystra, the scenes of his success and his sufferings on his former tour. At Lystra, on this occasion, occurred his first interview with Timothy. This young man was already a Christian of high reputation in the neighborhood, and we know that the early religious training of the youth had been quickened into positive spiritual life by Paul's words spoken during the former journey. This must have been a glad and tender meeting. When Eunice, Timothy's mother, introduced her son to, to Paul, and informed him of the youth's conversion, the spirit of the laborious missionary must have been greatly refreshed. Here was evidence that his labor and his sufferings had not been in vain. At sight of Timothy, Paul would thank God and take courage. The history is fresh and full of consolation still. It contains encouragement to every sower of the good seed down to the end of the world. Many seeds which go out of the sower's sight take root and bear fruit into eternal life. So that's the gospel now going forth on the second missionary journey. Um, that's a really helpful summary, by the way, isn't it? That we we don't lay uh, what, what happened with the Jer- uh, Jerusalem Council, right? We are not allowed as a church or as pastors or anything, we are not allowed to lay upon you anything 
that the Lord Jesus doesn't. He is the king. He rules the church. We have no right and no ability, no ability even to do that, to lay anything upon the consciences of God's people that he himself does not. Therefore, faith alone saves us and makes us right with God. And so the gospel goes forth after this, uh, after this doctrinal dispute, they go and they see Timothy, and then eventually we see the conversion of Lydia uh, before we get to the Philippian jailer. Because remember, Paul is thrown into prison with Silas, and they're singing those hymns um, uh, because uh, and they're, they're thrown in there because they've been kind of troublemakers, at least according to the police. And then they go, uh, they're arrested. They're, there's an earthquake, though, that happens. And the jailer comes in. He's so scared because he's, he's thinking uh, these guys uh, have left and he's going to die. So he's ready to kill himself. And they say, they say no, we're, we're here. And then he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And here at the very end here, I want to th- think about uh, this, this man's life. Um, um, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. We read, um, and uh, the, it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here, another example of Paul's suffering, but yet it turns for great good. And here is the last thing I want to read is from William Arnaud here, and it's called Faith and Obedience, and it's about this section here with the Philippian jailer. Can faith save you then without works? Suppose a man should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to exhibit a profane and impure life. Will he be saved by his sound faith in spite of his wickedness? This question does not deserve an answer. It is a foolish question. It assumes an impossibility. Suppose one should address to an eminent physician the question, Pray, sir, tell me, is the blood necessary to life? And he should answer, it is. Suppose the questioner then proceeds to say, But if a great artery is cut, and all the blood of the body escapes, and the man still lives and acts with undiminished vigor, do you persist in your opinion that the blood is necessary to life? The physician will not answer. You have put a foolish question, and he treats it with contempt. Or if he answer at all, he will say, First show me a living man with no blood in his body, and then I shall consider the causes of the phenomenon. Such treatment he deserves, who inquires, Shall I be saved if I believe in Christ, though I live in sin? The supposition is an impossibility. To believe in Christ, as that jailer believed, is the death blow to the reign of sin in your members, as the letting out of the heart's blood puts an end to the life. People who, with a whole heart, merely talk on the subject may suggest many objections to the doctrine. But when a man is convinced of sin by the secret power of the Spirit and closes with Christ as his sacrifice, substitute, righteousness, and intercessor, he is at that moment and by that act placed in enmity with his own sin as fire and water are at enmity. When he is in Christ, he is a new creature. Surely if people would apply their minds to the subject, It should not be very difficult to comprehend that actual obedience by the man, that is, his good works, must be withdrawn from the ground of his hope and take a place as the fruit of his faith. Here is a water channel that has been dry all the summer. Straws and leaves and dust have accumulated in it. 
to make all clean and clear again, you do not say, let a stream of water be poured through it from the fountainhead, and let all the straws and leaves be gathered up and carried away. Let the water from the fountainhead gush into the neck of the channel, and it will sweep away the miscellaneous rubbish that encumbered the course. Thus it is in the spiritual life. It is not faith and good works together that make salvation true. sure. Faith, when it begins to flow, carries works in its train. Faith in Christ as your substitute, your peace with God, will make short work of the ten thousand encumbrances which block the channels of your heart and life. This is the victory which overcometh the world, even your faith. Even in the brief sketch given here of the jailer's conversion, you see beautiful bunches of fruit quickly ripening on the branch as soon as it is in the vine. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and set meat before them. The current of this man's life is reversed. He could not see, he could not but see that the flesh of his prisoners was lacerated by the rods. He did not ask whether they were hungry. As the easiest way of securing his own safety, he thrust them into the inner prison and pinioned their feet in locks of iron. He then went to bed and slept so soundly that no psalm singing disturbed his rest. He did not awake till the earthquake awoke him. All care in the evening was for himself, and his selfishness was cruel. Now, when the midnight scene had passed, he has no care about himself. All his attention is devoted to his prisoners. Not a thought about how the possible displeasure of the magistrates, if they should learn that he had invited these notable prisoners unguarded into his own house. In the evening he was heedless of the apostles' wounds and hunger. Now he washes their wounds and gives them bread. Behold the good works that his infant faith was already bearing. These were the first duties that lay to hand. Give me the subsequent history of that Christian, and I will show you in it other things to match them. Every creature after its kind, and the new creature is not an exception to the rule. His faith in the Lord Jesus Christ saved him, and that faith instantly reversed the volume of his life, as the rising tide of the ocean meets and flings back the river's stream. This is a crucial case as to the power of faith in Christ to save a sinner. It is parallel with the example of the thief of the cross. The man was taken in the very act of murder. He intended to take away his own life, and accordingly to the principles which the Lord laid down, the intention carried within it the guilt of the deed. Suppose now that Paul's cry had been one minute too late, that the uplifted arm had fallen, and that the dagger had severed a vital artery. Suppose that the wound is mortal, but that that the lifeblood takes an hour to ebb away. It is not conceivable that the preacher would in that case have made any change in his terms. The word would still have been, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Thus an offer of free pardon would have been made to the murderer while the blood of his victim was still flowing warm. The murderer might within the hour have believed, and at the end of it have entered into rest. There is glory to God in the freeness and fullness of his mercy. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation. The earthquake was the answer to the prayer which Paul and Silas, lying on their backs, hymned toward God in heaven. But although the earthquake could open the doors of the prison, it could not break the bonds in which the jailer's soul was held. In that case, God was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a still small voice from the lips of the imprisoned missionary, and God was in the voice, God our Savior. Before the power of that voice, the heathen's heart gave way and flowed down like water. When a man begins to care for his own soul, he instantly cares also for those who are dear to him. 
Knowing this law of human nature, Paul provides in the same breath comfort in regard to himself and in regard to his house. On the same terms, the jailer's family will be received. And accordingly, the word of the gospel was spoken to him and to all who were in his house. It is good when every family is a small church and every church a large family. The magistrates of the city, having been hurried into the arrest by the daring attitude of the mob, determined next morning to desert the diet and discharge the prisoners. Accordingly, an officer was sent to the prison with an order for their release. The jailer joyfully proceeded to execute the order for his, of his superiors, but Paul saw meet to stand on his rights and declined the offer. It is now pretty generally acknowledged that Paul did not enjoy the privileges of a Roman citizen in virtue of his birth in the free city of Tarsus. Although the city was free, its freedom did not confer the dignity of Roman citizenship on all its population. It is more probable that the honor was conferred on some of the apostles' ancestors for services rendered to the state. It was the custom of Roman governors so to claim loyal services in the provinces. Alarmed at the claim of Paul, the magistrates acceded to, at once to his demand. They came in person to the prison and gave the prisoners a public and honorable acquittal. This was not a display of pride or of vengeance. The apostles did not court suffering. Rather, for their work's sake, they desired to avoid it. They saved their lives at one time by flight and at another time by invoking the protection of imperial law against the excesses of particular magistrates. There is no fanatical rashness in their conduct. Their conduct is guided by wisdom and courage and common sense. So there we have it. The gospel continues to go forth, and the royal ambassadors of King Jesus are going forth, establishing colonies, in a sense colonizing, and spreading the reign of the empire of King Jesus across Europe now, into Greece, uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now spreading this empire to the ends of the earth. King Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. They work for him. He rules over them. And his missionaries, his uh, officials, who, are, who here, is, as uh, the writer here says, they're, they, they're in the, uh, the foreign service. They work, for the, uh, they work for the foreign department. And now they're spreading this gospel in the imperial reign of King Jesus uh, to the ends of the earth. What a wonderful picture it is of missions, seeing men and women taken out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Well, I thank you so much for listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging. Uh, I thank you for listening because I know it's a, a lot of listening to, uh, uh, you know, older, older writing, but I think it's really helpful. And I think it's helpful to think about how Christians read the Bible and thought about it back then, because I think we have, they have so many good insights for us. Um, and in many ways, even though it's, it's old writing, it's fresh ideas uh, for our current, current day and for us as we read the Bible uh, with the church of all ages. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Take care. God bless.